Our guest this morning is property royalty, Mr. Robert Hamilton AM. Alongside architect Henry Pollack, Bob co-founded development giant Mervac Group in 1972 and led the company through extraordinary growth as managing director for over 30 years. Under Bob and the management team's leadership, the business was floated in 1987 with an initial market capitalisation of $100 million. In 2005, he passed over leadership of the firm to another gentleman, by which time the business had delivered in excess of 30,000 residences across world-leading precincts such as Beacon Cove in Melbourne and Olympic Village in Sydney, and the business then had a market capitalisation of just under $4 billion. Today, Mervac has a market cap of near on $12 billion and still utilises Bob's extensive industry experience as a sounding board for new initiatives from time to time. Bob, welcome to the program. It's a real privilege having you on this morning. To begin, you've been involved within the property industry for over 60 years. To what extent has it changed and how sophisticated is the industry here in Australia compared to, say, the US or the UK? It's obviously changed with the market. You know, as the population's got uh, a lot bigger, uh, the business has changed to, to accommodate that, accom that uh, market. Uh, it's uh, now very competitive with the rest of the world. In fact, I think it's, our standards are probably higher uh, than, than a lot of most of the world. Um, but uh, the uh, increased population is, is, is the, the market's much bigger People are no longer building small buildings, they're building big buildings. Uh, big, bigger shopping centres, bigger industrial complexes. It's, it's just all, all relates to the market. Reflecting on your career, what have been the major trends that have transformed the property sector? Trends have probably been a, actually an improvement in the product as competition got, got greater. Um, which is good to see. I mean, the standards in the 1960s and early 70s was, were pretty grim. And this developed after the war, of course, when the we had migration, there was a shortage of housing. People could put up anything and, and sell it. And so the standards were very poor. Uh, but it, it's, it's gradually improved. And uh, of course, regulations now have improved, uh, much tougher and, and to get compliance with the events of the past 15 months have culminated in perhaps the greatest change to the ways in which businesses and, and people consider the use of physical spaces. In your view, are these events likely to result in long-term structural changes within particular asset classes, or do you think this is more of a short-term thing? It's hard to say. I think there will be some changes, but I think a lot of it will revert back to, to, to previously. I mean, I'm not a big believer in people wanting to work from home, to be honest with you. Um, I think people will miss, miss the social contact. They'll miss the, meeting their friends, uh, having a cup of coffee, having a drink after work. Um, and I don't, I, I think a lot of, it depends what industry you're in, what business you're in. Uh, certain things like accounting, uh, clerical work, yes, you can do it from home, but uh, certainly not in the property industry. <laughs> In the property industry, you need to be able to sit around the table, toss up ideas, go backwards and forwards. I mean, I've sat in a lot of uh, video meetings in the last couple of years, and they just don't work anywhere near as well as when you're actually talking face to face to somebody and, 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 and working on a, a problem. So that's relating to office works. Obviously, in uh, retail, um, that, that's been changing for quite a while. Uh, with, with, with people buying on the web. Um, 
but the, the major shopping centres will adapt. They'll change to more service retail, more entertainment retail, more entertainment uses, um, and the, the major well-run uh, centres will, will, will still be around. Um, of course, the, the small um, food centres will, 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 will still proceed just like they have uh, through the virus stage. But, but I, I really do believe that after this is over, things will settle down to, to, to a lot like they were before. As a destination for capital, Australia has become increasingly desirable for large overseas funds and development groups, particularly over the last decade or so, and particularly from places like the US. Based on your experience, when did overseas, large overseas players start to enter the market and mm. did it have a significant impact? Yes, well, in actual fact, in the, going right back to the 70s, the English property companies owned property in, in Australia. They invested not a lot, but they did invest. In Japan, the interest rates were very low. In Australia, the returns were higher, interest rates were higher. So the Japanese came in quite big numbers and invested a lot of money. But uh, I'm afraid uh, they didn't invest very wisely and went, soon went home quite hurt. In fact, uh, the locals did very well out of it because I remember we bought a couple of their sites afterwards and made a lot of money. So uh, we were quite grateful to the, to the Japanese investment. But uh, of course, then in the, as, uh, after the 90s recession, um, a lot more uh, investment has come to Australia um, from places from Canada, Europe, uh, States, and of course from China. In, and uh, a lot from China in, in for development. A lot of that was for people wanting to get money out of China, I think. Um, and they tended to overpay for sites, made it very difficult for locals to, to compete. Um, some of these will stay, some will go home um, hurt. But uh, I think a lot of them don't, didn't mind making, didn't want to make money from actually um, the developments, that all they wanted to do is get the money out of China. Mm. There's been a lot of commentary recently in regard to property taxes and their inefficiencies, particularly in relation to this debate between stamp duty and, and land tax and which is more efficient. What's your view and is there a better system that could be put in place? Well, there's definitely a better system, but it's hard to change the tax, taxation system. People who uh, have paid stamp duty uh, and, and uh, taxes don't want to pay a broad-based land land tax uh, to to aid the the new owner the new purchasers, so it's it's very difficult to change. And if it if a new um, land tax is applied purely uh, in place of stamp duty on new purchases, uh, what's going to happen when interest rates go up, and as well as having to increase repayments for for their loans, they're going to have to be paying a land tax on top of that. So it, it, uh, it's, it is a concern. Um, obviously, the, the, the real answer is for the, for the federal government to increase uh, GST, which again wouldn't be popular, but, and, and to uh, uh, stamp out stamp duty and payroll tax. But I can't see that happening. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Bob Hamilton, the person. Tell me about your upbringing in terms of where you grew up, your, your parents, Australia as a country uh, back then. Well, I was, uh, 
My parents were, were born in Australia, um, but uh, I was, uh, lived in Chatswood in a, in a quite a modest uh, federation house. Um, my parents were middle income. Um, my grandfather had done very well, in fact. He'd, he'd came out from, uh, originally from Scotland, but via Ireland. Um, couldn't read or write, but when he died, he, he died a week before I was born. Um, and I was named after him. <laughs> but uh, he did very well, um, made a lot of money. But my father managed to lose most of it. Um, so uh, it, it uh, but he, they did struggle, my parents, uh, because during the war, uh, my father didn't go to the war because he had an essential industry. He uh, owned an ice works and, uh, and a cold store. And of course, in those days, people, a lot of people didn't have refrigerators. They had ice chests. And so they, they'd have to deliver the blocks of ice around the people's house. And so it was uh, classified as an essential industry. Um, but they sent me to Shaw, which is a private school. And uh, I was very, I was lucky to go there, but I actually hated school. The happiest day of my life was the day <laughs> I left school. <laughs> and that was because I'm dyslectic. Um, I had trouble learning. Um, B's look like D's, and I kept on reading the same line twice. I still do, um, but, but uh, um, so, and I was in fact over, very overweight because I had thyroid problems. So I used to get teased and bullied. Mm. Um, so that, that actually uh, probably where it started me off actually making me de um, determined to succeed and to show them I wasn't, show people I wasn't silly. <laughs> Uh, and I think that's, that's probably how it happened. Now, I read that post your schooling, you enrolled in a medical degree, however, unfortunately fell ill during the first year of your studies and were therefore unable to continue. What prompted the, the interest in medicine? Yeah, well, I had an uncle who was a doctor, a very successful doctor, an orthopaedic surgeon, and uh, actually he started the orthopaedic uh, uh, practices at the uh, Royal North Shore Hospital, and it's now the leading New South Wales Orthopaedic Hospital. Um, so I, I was always keen on that. I thought it was a, way, a good way of achieving and doing something worthwhile. Um, unfortunately, because of my uh, learning problems at school, I didn't do the science subjects. Uh, so when you started doing medicine, the first you did four, four subjects, uh, chemistry, physics, zoology and botany. Um, I, I got a distinction in zoology, credit in botany and failed in chemistry and physics. <laughs> but uh, I, I, they gave me posts. But unfortunately, between the time I, I got the end of the year and the set for the posts, I came down with hepatitis and I got quite ill. So I, I, there's no way I could do the posts. So I thought, oh, well, I'll have to miss a year and come back the next year. Mm. Um, but after about four months and getting better, I was getting pretty bored, so I saw a job, job advertised for a trainee salesman in real estate, so I thought, oh, I'll take that for the year. And now, 60 years later, I'm still selling real estate, so I'm trying to sell real estate. So and that, that's how it's happened. Talk to me about some of those early experiences as an estate agent. I mean, it's obviously a lot yeah, different. Yes, so well, I, I soon found out I wasn't a very good salesman, actually, but uh, what I was interested in was, I was working in DY, and. Uh, up on the hills of, of DY behind the beaches, um, the, uh, they were subdividing all the land. So I used to go around and work out how many lots of land you could 
how many blocks you'd get out of so many acres of land and and then I'd uh, get a listing of the land and go and sell it to the small property developers around the place. Um, and then I went from that to uh, accumulating uh, houses for uh, selling to developers. Um, and uh, so uh, that's, that's the side of the business that obviously interested me was the development side and not, not just the selling of the houses to mums and dads. Um, and so after working for Hookers, LJ Hookers, for a few years, um, I then sort of thought, well, I really want to start my own business. But uh, so I went out and worked for a one-man show, one-man office, um, with just a, one other salesman actually. And uh, I was working there for about six months. And the other salesman was the elderly chap. He said, well, you should be running your own business. You, you, you shouldn't be working here. And I said, I would be if I had some money. So he said, I'll lend it to you. So he lent me, um, oh, it was a two and a half thousand pound, I think it was at the time. And uh, so um, with that, um, I, and I met another chap who'd been working at Hookers, uh, who had a similar sort of amount of money. And so he said, oh, well, we'll form a company. and." away we go and uh, his name was Jeff Garrett and I thought oh well we'll call it Hamilton Garrett and he said no no he was actually he was a lot older than me he said you'll be around longer than me so just call it Hamilton and Company. So that went on for about 10 years and uh, after 10 years we had five offices and staff 50 people. Wow. Um, but uh, we, we specialised purely on, on amalgamating sites, selling them to developers, uh, getting the agency back uh, for the developers. And then I started advising the developers what to build, you know, you know telling them what colours to paint the, 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 their uh, buildings and around, right down to the very detail of, of, of what, to do, what to do. That's, that's how it sort of developed. And, but I was then obviously interested in developing myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to uh, um, do small developments myself, uh, just housing, houses and so forth. Mm. But uh, um, then I uh, met Henry Pollock. Mm -hmm. Henry was an architect and uh, I met him on a building site down at Wollstonecraft on the Sydney's North Shore. He had just built, uh, was in the course of building two small buildings. Um, and I walked through one of the buildings and I uh, thought, Boy, this is better than uh, I've seen for a long time. Uh, it, was, it was a good, very good building. So I went looking for him and I met him in the building shed. And I uh, said, you know, when are you going to sell these? And, and you had, in those days, you never sold anything off the plan. You, you actually built it and sold it when it was finished. Uh, he said, oh, no, we're not selling these. We, we're keeping them. And, and I've got some investors that I'm acting for uh, and they're going to rent them. But he said, uh, I'm always looking for sites. Have you got any sites? And I said, well, if I get some sites, you know, will, will, I, will you um, uh, give me the agency back? And he said, oh, yes, yes, okay. So I found him a couple of sites and he, he developed, them, developed them on the North Shore. Uh, and I advised him what to build. And then he said to me, well, why aren't you come in with me on, and do these developments with me? And I said, I haven't got enough money. Uh, every bit of money I've got, I've poured back into the estate agency. And he said, well, well roll up your, your, your commissions that you make your, on, on this deal. 
and put that in as equity in the building. So we did that. And we did that on a couple of buildings. Uh, I had a, obviously a lot smaller share than that he, he had in them. But then we, we tackled one building out of Dremoyne where it was 58 apartments on the waterfront. And we borrowed 100% of the money off a finance company at 12% interest rates. And they took, as well as 12%, we, they took half the profits. Mm. And they capitalised the interest while we were building, but then once the building was finished, we had to pay the interest. Um, and the, we got to the end and we hadn't sold any buildings, any of the units. Um, and uh, I had enough money to pay another uh, three months interest. And that was it. After that, I was history and we'd signed, we'd signed personal guarantees on the, on the, on the loan. So anyway, they started to sell and we, we managed to, to, to pay back and, and uh, the money. And I then said to Henry, no more of this personal guarantee business. Uh, <laughs> we, we can't, I'm not prepared to do that. <laughs> so uh, Henry went around looking for backing um, and uh, he approached uh, AGC, which is AGC was the Australian Guarantee Corporation, which was 50%, or was that more, sorry, it was uh, more than 50% owned by Bank of New South Wales, uh, obviously who became Westpac. They agreed to come in with us. Uh, their main interest was to fund uh, our developments. So, but they put in, um, uh, we, we put in um, between us half a million dollars. They put in another half a million dollars and lent us uh, as capital and lent us interest-free another half million dollars. So we had a million and a half capital in 1972. I, I, Henry had more money than me in those days, and, and of course, he, we all, he always had. <laughs> but he, he put in $350,000 and I put in $150,000. Of course, $150,000 in 1972 is, I don't know what it's worth today, probably, I don't know, several million dollars anyway. Um, but uh, that was how we started. They, they led us the money right through from uh, 1972 to 1987. They charged us uh, bill rate plus 2%. Um, but it was good because there was no mortgages. They had a charge over the, over the shares of the company. Um, and we didn't have to get valuations. We got quick decisions. And so it went for very well. But, we, but because we were actually a subsidiary of a public company, we didn't have to distribute profits. In those days, a private company had to distribute profits. Mm. Um, so, but so everything we made, we just put back into the, into the, into the company. And that's how we built it up till in, uh, in 1987, uh, when we, we floated the company. Why, why we floated was because in 1984, they deregulated the banking system. And then the um, was then uh, named Westpac, not Bank of New South Wales. They didn't have to uh, lend money through AGC any longer. They could lend directly to developers. Mm -hmm. And then they saw this as a clash of interest with lending to, to other developers. So they wanted out. Uh, that's why we floated for them so that they could get their money out. They, they, um, for their original uh, million dollars of investment, they took, took uh, $50 million uh, in 1987, plus all the interest they'd made on the way through. 
So they were pretty happy. Um, so that's how we floated. I think if I recall correctly, you said in a previous interview or maybe in an article that you and Henry always had more of a business relationship rather than sort of a friendship. Why was that? Oh, Henry had a hard upbringing. I mean, he, he, was, he, was, a, he was a tough man. Um, of course, he, he came to Australia during the, uh, during the war. He, um, his whole family were wiped out uh, <clears throat> in the Holocaust. He actually came out to Australia by hanging on the back of a train across Siberia and walked to Australia, wow. uh, down through China. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he got here when he was 17. So he did that as a boy. Wow. Um, so it made him very tough. Mm. Never trusted anybody. Um, and he was, uh, it got very hard to deal with towards the end, really, uh, because, uh, I, you know, I, I, he had different ideas of how to run a company than I did. And after we floated, um, he always wanted to treat it more still like a private company and not like a public company. Uh, and just reflecting on that period from, say, 72 to 87, those 15 years or so, what, what was it that, um, that, that caused the growth? How did you go about growing the business over that time? Well, we started off, we were building uh, small blocks of apartments, really, but we always wanted to, to have investments. We realised with property development, you, you go, it's up and down business. There's times when, you, when you, you can't make money out of developing. So we needed to have a steady income through investments. And the original agreement with AGC had 20% of every profit we, bit of profit we made, we'd put back into investment real estate. Uh, but of course, until we started making bigger profits, there wasn't much in that 20% to, 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 to build actually anything worthwhile. Um, so that's, that's, but we always wanted to do that. Um, but in our early buildings, we were just sort of blocks, apartments of buildings of, of, of you know, 18 um, and, and maybe 24, 30 odd apartments. But then in, in the early 70s, uh, Whitlam came to power and the uh, economy was an absolute disaster. Um, interest rates went to over 20%, 20, 21%. You couldn't borrow money. Uh, con construction costs were, were, were rampant with inflation. Um, and so we, we, we couldn't build anything. What we did was buy old blocks of flats and do them up. Uh, new kitchens and new bathrooms, strata title them and, and sell them. Uh, I remember when one year we did 300 of them and made $300,000 after, after profit, after overheads. Um, so uh, it, was, it was a lot of work for not a lot of money, but at least we, we, we uh, made a profit. So that, the, from that, we, after um, Whitlam went and the economy started to pick up again, um, we, we got into bigger developments in the, in the uh, late 70s. Um, we bought a large site at Willoughby on the North Shore, which was the biggest one we'd have tackled at that time. It was 161 apartments. It's interesting, Mervax now just bought the site next door and putting 400 odd, on it, over 400 <laughs> on it. So, um, but it took us five years to sell those 100, to build and sell those 161. And Mervac today is going to do it in one go. So, 
times changed. I've also read that you had a, a relentless focus on the customer, which seems to have carried right through to Mervac's business today in terms of understanding their needs and then incorporating their needs into the design and development of, of each of the projects. Tell me about where your obsession on, on sort of customer needs and, and design came from. Well, I, I was always believed that if you looked after the customer, the customer would come back and, and want to do business with you again. So we, we always made sure that we gave good after-sales service. We went back and, and we didn't argue about rectifications. We'd just go and do them. And we found that people would come back and buy. buy so that um, and now and, and right through, a third of all Mervac's products are bought by people who have bought them, who have done business with, with Mervac before. You get repeat customers, it saves you a lot of money in marketing costs. Um, so. It's, it's worthwhile spending that bit of money on, on looking after your customer. But you've always got to look after all your stakeholders. If you've got to build a company, you've got to look after your staff, number one, and you've got to look after the, the customers and your shareholders. So, that, so that's, uh, you've got to, it's a matter of balancing it and, and, do, and doing the best you can. But I always believe that uh, you know, if you left a bit on the table in a deal, uh, people would want to come back and deal with you again. So that's, that's one of my rules. <laughs> it's, it's quite commonplace nowadays, but I think you would have been one of the first to, to do it in that you didn't just develop residential apartments or townhouses or focus just on the residential asset class. You also diversified the business into other things like hotels, office, commercial precincts. Why you, how did you see that so early on before others? Well, we, we, we obviously wanted a steady income flow. Cash flow is very important in any business. Um, and that's why we, wanted, we decided uh, to diverse into other, other uh, income earning activity. Um, we got into the hotel end business actually by accident more than, 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 than uh, planning. We, we bought the, uh, the Siebel Hotel at, uh, at the, at, up at the Kings, up at the Cross at Elizabeth Bay, uh, which is, was in those days a five-star hotel. In fact, uh, all the entertainers used to stay there. Elton John got married there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, um, uh, we bought it with the idea of actually doing it up, uh, doing up the rooms and putting kitchens in them and strata tidying it and selling it off. But we ended up making some more money out of running it as a hotel, so we kept it. <laughs> and then we bought another hotel, um, at the Hyde Park Plaza, with the same idea actually of strating it off, but we kept that. Um, but, uh, uh, and that was. Uh, probably uh, we're in the hotel business from the early 80s uh, up, up till the, well, after I left. Um, but, but, but hotels are, are good to manage, but they're not good to own. You never stop spending money on <laughs> hotels. Now, one of the things that I read that did interest me was that throughout the course of Mervac's history with you at the helm, since inception, it didn't make one year of losses, it made profits every year. How did you go about building such a sustainable business model? Well, it's all about knowing the market. If you really know the market, uh, then, you, then you won't lose money. Mm. Um, and when I say know the market, it's not just a matter of knowing that you can sell a two-bedroom apartment for X dollars per metre. 
You've got to know whether what people want in that apartment. You know, do, 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 they, do they want to, uh, will they accept a kitchen, uh, a laundry cupboard, cupboard and not a full laundry? Well, do they want a bath in the, in the en suite or do they want the bath in the other bathroom, in the other bit, bathroom? Um, it's the detail. It's getting down to actually make sure that every room can be furnished properly, that the power points are in the right place. And you, you, you do that and, and, and look after the detail, then you'll succeed because people will want to, want to buy them and they'll want to live in them. And uh, I always preferred dealing, uh, building apartments uh, for owner-occupiers, not for investors. Because an owner-occupier, whether a pro, uh, uh, an apartment's 1.2 million or 1.3 million, if, if it's really good and it's what they want, they'll pay the 1.3. And, and the extra $100,000 is profit. Um, but investment, investment uh, selling, it's all a matter of figures. Mm -hmm. and, and so people buy at so much a metre. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's uh, the, the, you know, why I always, we always concentrated on the uh, owner-occupier market. You led the business for over 33 years and throughout multiple property cycles and economic periods. How did you go about positioning the business to weather any, any sort of storm, be it political or economic or otherwise? Oh, I think by, by not, not uh, being very conservative on our gearing, um, we never borrowed too much money. Um, we'd always try and gear to, to about 20, 30, under 30% of our asset backing. Um, and that way you could weather the storm. Um, in 90, 91, 92, in the recession, um, it was tough um, because we had a, uh, I remember we had a, f a f bank facility of $200 million. Uh, even though we weren't, weren't in breach of any of the covenants, the, the banks turned around and said to us, you've got to cut it down from 200 million to 100 million in one year. And that was a really tough time because we then had to put people off. And I hated doing that. It was the worst thing about running a company is when you have to put people off, good people with families, mortgages. Um, and that, that, was, that was tough. But uh, we, we weathered that storm because we weren't highly geared and we were still being prof we were still profitable. Um, but uh, they, they those few years were, were heavy, tough going. But of course it bounced back and, and uh, in the, from the late 90s right through to I left. But then in, in 2005, I could see the writing on the wall again coming because uh, the market was very overheated. It was, uh, uh, people were paying crazy prices for, for real estate. Um, investment real estate. Uh, I remember we tried to buy Chatswood Chase Shopping Centre. We offered a yield of five and a half percent when interest rates were eight percent. So it's not like today with low interest rates, but the yields were still very low. And we, we lost out to, to, uh, to Commonwealth Funds um, who bought it at five and a quarter percent. Um, and I then could see, see that things were going to get tough. But uh, and I was, I was uh, my health actually at that time wasn't the best um, because I was uh, spend my life on aeroplanes going from one state to the other. Um, 
virtually every week. Um, and uh, uh, living in hotels, um, I say put on too much weight, <laughs> probably uh, eating too much hotel food. Um, but uh, um, a doctor said to me, if you keep up doing this, for, you'll be dead in a year. So that's when I decided I just had to get out. So that's when I left. A couple of uh, final questions just to end. Reflecting on your career, how would you evaluate the leadership style that you sort of ran with and, and how do you think staff at the firm responded to that? Well, I think I, um, my, my, I don't know if it was the style of leadership, but, but the way I always looked at it was that you, you work with people, you don't, people don't work for you. I, I used to hate when I heard when a manager saying, so-and-so works for me. You didn't, they didn't work for me, they work for the company and they work with you. And so we always used to try and have a team team way of working. We encourage team, teams to, to work. I'm very happy now that uh, Susan Lloyd Horwitz is doing exactly the same. She, she, she's in, absolutely insistent on people working as teams because um, nobody knows it all. It's, it's, it, real estate's a complex business and, and you need uh, everybody to put in their, their toughness hate you with um, and, and then work as a team and then you'll get results then. People will enjoy doing it. They'll, they'll like having their say and they'll like being able to be listened to and what, they, what their opinion is. And I think that's probably the way Mervac has been built. You were recently the very worthy recipient of an Order of Australia medal announced as part of the Queen's Birthday Honours list. What are your proudest achievements when you look back over your career? Oh, obviously was, was being... Uh, building Mervac, we've been part of, part of the, the team that built Mervac. I mean, I didn't build Mervac, the team built Mervac. I mean, right from the start, I realised that I wasn't good at everything by, by long shot. And so I, I built up a, a good group of management, a senior management team, right back in the, in the very beginning. Um, there was four of us actually, uh, who one of them worked with me for the 33 years I was here and the other, other two uh, worked for over 25 years. Um, and uh, we, we worked together um, right through that time. And, and so that was, the, that was the sort of core team and then each of those people formed their own teams with their own special part of the business. And for developers or business owners or aspiring developers or business owners, what are some of the lessons that you're able to pass on? Oh, I think the greatest lesson is that of working as, 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 as a team um, and, and knowing your market. As I've said before, you've got to know whether, you, whether it's uh, apartment development, whether it's shopping centres. I mean, the Lowy, Frank Lowy was successful because he, he was a retailer. He knew how to retail. Um, and that's why he was successful. Um, and, and the people who know the market will always be successful. Outside of property, and, and as I understand, you still come into Mervac's office here once or, or twice a month, but outside of property, what other fields interest you or where else do you sort of focus your attention? Oh, well, I was, I, I was very bad at having other interests. <laughs> I, I used to work 60 or 70 hours a week. Um, because I love doing it. 
uh, it was it was more than just a job. It was what I loved doing. Um, but since I since I've left Merbeck, I, I've spent quite a bit of effort and help. I did uh, quite a bit of work with the Salvation Army, uh, advising them on helping them with developing some of their properties, maximising their values to properties. When I gave advice to. Uh, uh, St. Vincent's Health, um, and uh, then I was uh, on the West Connects Delivery Authority board for, for a couple of years, Landcom board for, for six years, and uh, their uh, advisory board for another six years. So that, that, those type of interests uh, all re related to property, of course. Um, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed uh, and, and, and still doing some advisory work from time to time. My final question is, what's, what's the next chapter for Bob Hamilton? Uh, probably the next chapter is staying around for <laughs> till, 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 till next year <laughs> because it's Mervac's 50th year. And there's not too many property companies that have been around for 50 years. Mm. So I hope to be around to celebrate that. Bob Hamilton, absolute privilege sitting down with you, a true icon and, and doyen of the real estate and property industries. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you.